Welcome to this, the last of our 2016 Christmas BMJ podcasts. I'm Duncan Jarvis. This year, we've been discussing morality, compassion, truth, and this time, it's war. Firstly, war crimes. People make choices in war. Now, they may make them under incredible pressure and in desperate circumstances, but they are still making choices. And a glimpse into the past. The ruins fragmenting upon them, but but they decided, well, I'm here to to help my patients and I will stay uh, on my duty. The buses have left Aleppo. And we can only hope that the next stage of the Syrian conflict is less bloody. But the outrage expressed internationally by the targeting of medical facilities is still growing. In Yemen, the tactics of the Saudi-backed government are being scrutinised and questions about the UK's involvement in the supply of arms are being asked in Parliament. In South Sudan, fears of a repeat of the kind of genocide that happened in Rwanda are real. After the Second World War, there was an attempt to bring a moral sense to conflict. And Julian Sheather, specialist advisor on ethics and human rights to the BMA and author of the Christmas editorial Medicine Under Fire, is worried about the retrenchment of some of those ideals. So with reports this week uh, from Aleppo, the need for a moral compass within war seems as important as it's ever been. At root, the moral argument is simply that war is not, cannot be directly equated to a natural phenomenon. People make choices in war. Now, they may make them under incredible pressure and in desperate circumstances, but they are still making choices. A decision to barrel bomb a public square is a choice. It's not as though an individual is absolutely or a nation is coerced into doing that. Yes, in extreme circumstances, decisions get difficult, but I refuse to accept, and I really agree with that that, that tr- train of moral thought, Michael Waltz are particularly important, that says, look, we still make choices and therefore we are still open to moral judgment. And international humanitarian law, that's what that's about. It is saying we do have the liberty to recognise that there are real constraints. So I think that's something that I that, that is incredibly important to focus on. People still make decisions in wartime. It is not like an earthquake. It is not something that just a natural force that overwhelms. It is, in many respects, the outcome of a huge number of personal decisions. And we know that. I mean, think about courage. Think about bravery. These are individual moral decisions. Somebody will decide at a certain point, say, no, I'm going to, I'm willing to put my life down in order to save others. And we celebrate it. We say that's bravery. We say that's above and beyond the call of duty. There are decisions still making in warfare. And if we can praise the positive ones, it seems to me we can also condemn the negative ones. Mm. Which makes um, sentiment like Theresa May expressed at the um, Tory party conference earlier this year um, that perhaps uh, we should I don't know somehow protect soldiers from the legal consequences of their actions uh, in wartime um, to give them you know 
the freedom to do what they want there, uh, that must leave you particularly cold. I mean, it it creates enormous anxieties, doesn't it? I mean, absolutely against, you know, to protect such soldiers from kind of crazy litigious claims. That's a very different thing to saying there are you can make no moral and therefore no legal claims in relationship to the behaviour of soldiers. I mean, think of Mylay. Think of soldiers who become, so, for whatever reasons, go on insane killing rampages, slaughtering civilians. Are we really to say that, that all of that is outside moral judgment mm. and therefore also, in a linked way, outside of any kind of legal claim? I think we have to be very, very careful about opening that door to say that, 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 that soldiers, any soldier, should be able to operate without restraint in any context in which they find themselves... I think I can't. I'd find it very hard to imagine as well that the military would feel at ease yes. with those kinds of, you know, in that kind of context. Sorry to hop back to it again, no. but the response um, from the the conference goers uh, to Theresa May's speech there was kind of thunderous applause, mm. um, which I suppose talks to uh, something that you picked up in the editorial. Um, which is compassion fatigue. We're in a very difficult territory here because moral motivation is enormously important. You don't hear an awful lot about it in, in contemporary moral theory. You don't hear much about it in medical ethics, for example. No. But what makes us decide to do something that is, in a sense, quite straightforwardly good? Why? What, what motivates us? Where, where do we draw our moral motivation from? And compassion, suffering with others, is for many people a strong form of motivation. And and yet what we see, particularly in contemporary conflicts, overrepresented in some ways, massively represented in the media, is the inability, we lose that ability to suffer with people when we are in some ways oversaturated with these images. So how do we how do we you know how do we try and recognize that what we are seeing here are the sufferings of other human beings and that that must call out a moral response from us. It's a very difficult thing to do, particularly when conflicts are drawn out. We saw it in the Balkans. Mm. When when conflicts are complicated, when there are um, uncertain boundaries, when they're long drawn out, people tend to just start looking looking elsewhere. And that, I think, is a huge moral challenge for, for contemporary life, really. Mm. Social media can help and has helped and can very rapidly, but social media can also exhaust and oversaturate. So getting the balance right in those things is incredibly difficult. Now, you obviously are a medical ethicist. That's yeah. why you're here. That's yeah. why you write for the BMJ. Yeah. Um, is compassion fatigue an issue within clinical medicine? I think there's a really interesting uh, there's a really interesting balance to be had, isn't there? Because health professionals need clinical professional distance how can you survive professionally how can you operate effectively if you're overwhelmed by emotion you know if 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 your compassion radar you know if your compassion levels go off the off the off the scale so there's that on the one hand but good professional care means retaining a sense of the individuality of the person that you're dealing with, their individual needs, their personal responses, their own suffering. So getting that balance right is incredibly difficult. But as a patient, having been a patient, you know when they get it right. 
Mm. Because you get both very focused professional care, but you also get acknowledged as a human being. And that seems to me to be the sweet spot. Now, the other thing you talk about uh, is the normalisation um, yes. of war. Yeah. Uh, and again, um, you know, that happens in, in medicine as well. Yeah. People get used to a particular practice. Um, just to sort of step back from that a little bit, uh, when the Gulf War was yeah. first starting, you know, a million people were on the streets marching. Yeah. They they were protesting against in opposition, it. Yeah. Um, at the time, that didn't seem to make a difference and since then you know again and again public opinion is against uh war and again um doesn't seem to make much difference uh and then in the clinical world you know people feel like they're battling against a system that's not listening that's that does that powerlessness kind of feed into into that I think it does and also I think that you know th- th- this is the we're right at the end of 2016 which is by recent standards has been an extraordinary year let's face it mm. and I think there is a danger I think we have seen some of the political dangers of people feeling powerless and voiceless and and there's always a possibility that you will get some kind of demagogue rising to draw on those powers of frustration and I think this issue and I think you know if you look back at Brexit as well I know we're going off piece a bit here but if you look back at that this sense that there are large bureaucracies pursuing their own ends that are distant enormously distant and in some ways indifferent to the people who are living in the countries that are part of these bureaucracies which has echoes surely with the the great you know with the huge medical industrial complex that is the NHS and I think it is the loss of personal agency and you hear this in the profession as well doctors saying I've, how many times I've heard doctors say this I'm losing a sense of professional agency as a medical professional I'm being overwhelmed by system by process by by demand and what I can't do is exercise my professional agency. And that creates problems and that creates risks. And one of those risks must be a certain kind of, you know, the, the possibility of a certain kind of disaffection. We're hearing people saying that doctors are thinking of leaving the NHS in droves. Precisely because, or at least one of those reasons is that, they, is that the circle of their, of their professional agency, their ability to exercise their own professional skills, is in some respects being increasingly contained. And I think, it is a, I think it's a genuine problem. Mm. And I suppose alternatively the way people can go is they can get angry, they can get activated, they can try and do something about it. And I think maybe we have seen some of that with yep. junior doctors yep. um, striking. We have seen yep. that since Brexit and Trump yep. with, with the way people are trying to actually yep. organise a little bit. Yep. Um, does that give you any hope? I think it does. I mean, I think... I think one of the things we have seen over the last year is a, an extraordinarily renewed interest in politics, because things happened that were that were very that, that were both that were both seismic, and in terms of the sort of metropolitan liberal elite, unpredicted, and so there has been an enormous resurgence of interest in politics, um, and and I think. The toxin, if you like, of the of, of, of the huge bureaucracies is that people become disaffected, and that's partly why we saw, the, I think, the Brexit the Brexit vote. But as you rightly say, one of the results of that is a research, you know is politics. People say, that, well, we're, we're going to become politically engaged. We're we're, we're going to shout to have our voice. Out. I hope so. I hope that the democratic process, um, democratic representation, channels and funnels people's frustrations, and that we have an outcome that that, that, that respects the fundamental democratic structures. And to bring us back on 
topic here. It feels like, um, you know, if we talk about Aleppo again, moral outrage is yeah. fueling that response. Yeah. Um, and equally, uh, post Brexit, post Trump, with the rise in hate crimes and things, it's yeah. moral outrage that's yeah. that's um, fueling yeah. Yeah. fueling those things. So. Um, you know, it's a moral outrage. Is that is that the thing that makes the change here? Do you think? I mean, I, I, I personally, I tend to think of politics in some respects as a branch of moral philosophy. Really, it's about how we allocate the good things um, in the world, and to see such outrageous violations, to see people's fates violently curtailed to see people's ability to lead ordinary lives shattered by by the sort of un uninhibited use of power all of those things it seems to me give rise to moral, moral outrage and if they don't they should what do we do next how can we you know after the sec- after the first and second world wars we saw the growth of the international human rights structures we saw the geneva conventions developing spreading out and now it seems as though they're all in retreat all that as it were post-war consensus is is under threat and how we can you know the big questions are how we can ensure i mean think about in the medical context the deliberate the deliberate and sustained targeting of medical facilities medical personnel and also patients. I mean, in in absolute violation of the Geneva Conventions, international humanitarian law, international human rights, we are seeing systematic and sustained attacks on medical... How can we move to strengthen international humanitarian law to in order even to provide that minimum sense of protection that, look, Health professionals will go into these contexts and they will look after the injured, the wounded, irrespective of their affiliation. That is what health professionals can do. Surely that's something, you know, the BMJ, the medical profession, the global medical community, that's something we've got to try and think about. Mm. Because if there's no humanitarian space left anymore, it doesn't bear thinking about. Yeah. I mean, that's something... um as you write about, uh, you're trying to do in the BMA. You're going to yeah. try and, and lobby yeah. on this. So, what is what's your actual next year? We're looking to put together a um, a very a high level um, group of, of of opinion formers in medicine in the UK come together in the spring to say, look, what can we do to look for concrete opportunities? Um, we've seen the UN um, Security Council resolution. Um, last year. We've seen Ban Ki-moon's comments on it and his refinements on it. There's material in there to work with. So I think one of the things we need to do is to look and see how we can um, uh, get some motive force behind those behind those recommendations. Mm. And um, for listeners or members, yeah. um, is there anything they can do to help? Lobby, 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 lobby. You know, exercise your political power exercise it you know it's one of those things if 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 there's an, some awareness that people are listening people are thinking and people are pushing for change that's how democratic systems work and it seems to me yeah whatever whatever avenues you have at your hand to make to you know to influence the political scene take them up Julian Schuther talked about the moral outrage following the all-encompassing conflicts of the first and second world wars 
We know that was partly fueled by the bombing of hospitals and the targeting of medical personnel. In the Contentus building following the conflict, the protection for medics and hospitals was enshrined in Rule 35 of the Fourth Geneva Convention, directing an attack against a zone established to shelter the wounded, the sick and civilians from the effects of hostilities is prohibited. Our next interview talks about just one of the attacks that led to that rule. Navjarit Lada talks to Peter Weaver, who's a doctor in the Netherlands and has been uncovering the story of Number 10 Stationary Hospital in Saint-Omer in northern France. It was a British army hospital that was targeted and destroyed during the First World War. So Peter, when did you become interested in Number 10 Stationary Hospital? Well, it's a... Uh, uh it started because my uh, parents-in-law live in northern France, and uh, in northern France it's uh, impossible not to be confronted with the First World War because it's, it's all around. There are monuments everywhere. There are items from the First World War still uh, being found on the fields and in the forests. And so how did you find out about the accounts that you use in your article? Yeah, um, well... Yeah, it, it, it started with um, finding uh, the drawing that was published in the Illustrated London News. And it didn't have that much information um, other than that it was uh, in a chapel and that it was in Saint-Omer. So then I started um, looking for additional information on this. And um, I actually found two pictures of what this chapel ward looked like during daytime. One is published uh, in the article itself. And uh, the other one is in the um, collection in the archives of the Imperial War Museums. So that gave me an idea of, of what it looked like. When this boarding school was taken over um, early October 1914, um, there was also uh, this chapel. And so they started using it as a, as a ward. And because it was in a chapel, it became known as Chapel Ward. And it was primarily used for, for patients who had head injuries, as you can also see in the drawing, because uh, in the right uh, front, there's one patient who has these bandages around his head. And listeners can go and have a look at that on our website. And you can see very clearly the arrangement of beds around the chapel. And as you say, there are some patients there as well. Um, when did the hospital start to be attacked by German forces? In uh, 1917, late 1917, and and early 1918, um, the Germans started bombing British hospitals more intensely or, or um, the, the, the back countries uh, away from the front, they started bombing it more intensely. And um, also the hospitals came under fire. I don't know if um, this hospital, which by then was taken over by number 10 stationary hospital, um, if it was... Um, bombed um, deliberately or if it was just uh, coincidental that the bombs hit um, hit this this hospital but um, in the night of um, uh, 22 to 23rd May in 1918 the hospital was um, hit by four German bombs which um, well took out most of uh, the hospital and uh, presumably also uh, Chapel Ward although I don't have a description that Chapel Ward was actually hit, but it has gone now, so um, um, it might have been hit. But it, um, a large part of the hospital was was uh, um, hit by these bombs, and then um, 
it was decided that it wasn't well obviously it was not a safe situation anymore and as the building was ruined um the hospital number 10 stationary hospital moved to a place um some 20 kilometers from Saint-Omer which was supposedly more safe and there was that one night of bombing which we think was the 22nd to 23rd of May 1918 where you go through some of the very detailed accounts from diaries and other documents where nurses describe what happened. Can you talk more about those? Uh, yeah. Um, there were um, several uh, nurses, um, well, working, uh, of course, also during the nighttime at the time of the bombing. And um, several of these nurses, um, well, they sort of like stayed on the job, um, although the hospital had been bombed and, um, um, well, with danger of um, um, the ruins fragmenting upon them, but but they decided, well, I'm here to uh, um, to help my patients, and I will stay uh, on my duty. Um, and uh, for this, they were uh, awarded the military medal, um, which is um, special in the sense that um, for the happenings during this night, four nurses got. Uh, the military medal, while in the whole of the First World War, um, only 122 military medals were given to female nursing staff. So in that sense, uh, there's, there were well, a lot of nurses who distinguished themselves during this night and during these events. And you quote a couple of those entries in your article, I'll just read one out now. This one's from Beatrice Hopkinson, a nurse who was at the hospital that night. Feeling very tired, we retired early, but we had only been in bed what seemed a few moments when we heard enemy planes overhead. Immediately the bell from the ruins of Eglise Saint-Bertin commenced its mournful toll, and, as if by magic, every light was extinguished. When, bang, four bombs dropped in quick succession... We put our heads through the window and saw it was the night sergeant from the hospital asking for Matron. Soon Matron came and we overheard him say, Matron, those four bombs fell on the hospital, killing and wounding a great many. None of the sisters were wounded, fortunately, so all were busy doing what they could for those bombed, already bombed, patients. And there were casualties that night, as you mentioned, and I have another quote from one of your reference sources here. Received telephone message from Principal Matron Saint-Omer saying that three bombs had been dropped on 10 stationary hospital during the night and that two medical officers had been killed, four wards completely destroyed, 17 patients killed, but fortunately there were no casualties amongst the nursing staff. The Six Sisters Hospital had had a narrow escape. And so now these casualties are all buried close to the site of the Chapel Hospital. Is that right? To the south of Saint-Omer, there's a, a rather large... Um, 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 military cemetery where um well mostly um casualties um british casualty are casualties are buried but but also french casualties and i think even some germans as well also casualties from the second world war uh, there are 3000 casualties buried there from the first world war and 60 of them are from the royal army medical corps and all nine um Royal Army Medical Corps men that were killed during the bombing of Number 10 Stationary Hospital are buried at uh, that cemetery um, alongside each other, which, which I think is impressive to see, uh, well, these headstones um, with the RMC sign 
and uh, all having a similar date of death. So that that really um, confronts you with, um, well, the toll of what happened that night. And I think your article is a very moving reminder of what happened at the time. And the events of the First and Second World Wars and the bombing of medical areas, all that led to protection of hospitals. How did that happen? Well, um, eventually, um, uh, hospitals and war zones uh, became protected um, by, um, well, most recently, the Fourth Geneva Convention of 1949. Um, but, um, well, recently, um, uh, um, even very recently, I think only uh, this month or December or, 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 or last November, um, we can still see that, that around the world in war zones, hospitals are still being bombed despite uh, them being protected under these conventions. So um, really um, not much has changed in the sense that this protection um, doesn't safeguard hospitals from from being bombed. Um, like a hundred years ago, this still goes on. That's all for these Christmas 2016 podcasts. And the message that runs through all of them is that there are some real problems, but there are also solutions. In each of our podcasts, there are ways in which doctors can start making a change tomorrow, from simple hand-holding to direct political engagement. And I suppose this is a good time to mention our Christmas charity, Orbis, the sight-saving charity that operates in 92 countries around the world. When sight is restored to people who are visually impaired, or when blindness is prevented, it doesn't just improve the lives of individuals, it strengthens their communities. Men and women can return to work, children go back to school, People can contribute to their community, helping to build a better future for their families. A donation of £239, for example, could provide surgical training for two local doctors. £150 could buy six intraocular lenses for cataract replacement. And £84 could cover the cost of glasses for eight children. You can donate online at orbis.org slash bmj slash give. That's all for this year. We'll be back in the new year with more from the world of science and medicine. I'm Duncan Jarvis, wishing you a wonderful festive period. Thanks for listening.